Seriously, cracking up about this idea that like we're like, like doing sting operations to catch people. <laughs> you like can't control yourself. I love it. This is like the rest of the, the podcast is just you laughing and us trying You're to laughing. recover. Like anyway. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, good day, good whatever it is where you are. We're glad you're listening to us this evening on the Drunken UX Podcast. This is episode 18 of the Drunken UX Podcast, and this evening uh, we have a guest with us, Tatiana Mack, who will be talking about accessibility and inclusive design. Um, to get us started, though, I am one of your hosts. My name is Michael Feenan. You can follow me at Feenan, F-I-E-N-E-N, wherever you want to track me down. I actually have Instagram now. It's M Feenan, uh, because somebody what? else has my name. Yeah. Uh, what? It It's kind of like a, well, as speaking of Instagram, uh, the podcast has an Instagram now. Uh, so you can check us out <laughs> at Drunken UX Podcast on Instagram. But similarly, somebody already had Drunken UX, and it's pointing <laughs> to me because they haven't posted anything. So <sighs> here's our name sitting there. We're Drunken UX everywhere else, but on Instagram, somebody has squatted down on it and they haven't posted anything. I'm tempted to send them a message and see if maybe they would give it to me, but we'll see. Uh, anyway, I'm Feenan. Uh I have another host with me. He's on the other microphone. Hello. Hi. This is Aaron Hill. Hi, Aaron Hill. I'm the co-host. You can follow me on the Twitters at, at Aaron M. Hill. <laughs> no, just at Aaron M. Hill. No dot com. Oh, this long day. Good start. My laptop broke. <laughs> you you can follow the show uh, at the other places. Like I said, Facebook, Twitter at slash drunken UX. Check us out. Let us know what you think. Send us ideas. Um, we do real time overview every week. We talk about, uh, you know, news and, and uh, tutorials and articles in web development. Let us know what you're reading and what you would like other people to know about. You can check that out. Uh, yeah, Aaron, you've had some bad luck today, apparently. <laughs> I my my laptop broke this morning just randomly, and then on top of that, when I went to put the sh my shoes on to go outside, <laughs> my shoestring broke. So not, not exactly on the same scale, but okay, I'll I'll give it to you. Hey, it's just it's like death by a thousand minor inconveniences. Um, but on the bright side, <laughs> if if everybody uh, can hear everything, okay, um, you might notice that we did get Aaron's audio fixed, so he should sound much better <laughs> yeah. this week. So we fixed something that's yeah. got to count you know somewhere that's that's a sure yeah <laughs> first world victories i guess aaron what do you got uh, <laughs> over there in your glass this evening oh i'm taking another shot at the vesper martini i i think i got the ratios a little better this time it doesn't take completely like alcohol um i think you're doing it wrong so... if it doesn't taste like alcohol <laughs> well last time oh no it tastes like alcohol but just not complete like last time it tasted like I was drinking rubbing alcohol. Like I, I don't, I didn't have enough mm. Lille Blanc in it. I think that's a yeah, that's a tough drink, man. <laughs> that was a hard night. I also didn't, I also didn't shake it enough last time, and so not <laughs> enough of the ice melted, and so it was just like double barrel of uh, of that Everclear. Yeah, we're, we're drinkers, <laughs> not mixologists. <laughs> right. 
I'm, I'll have, I'm gonna take another <laughs> shot at it one of these nights, but I will, I do want to actually get a bottle of Lille Blanc. Um, and I'm headed out of town this weekend where there is a much bigger and well-stocked uh, liquor store. Well, so I might know. be able to get a bottle, and I think that'll I'll I'll be interested to try it correctly, so to speak. <laughs> I am uh, I I mentioned on the last episode that I would break out the uh, Trace Mujeres, and so uh, there we go. <gasps> You did. We've got Trace Mujeres. Excellent. Uh, nice oak-aged tequila. Sipping. Not uh, not shooting. Not uh, blending. We're going to just enjoy this. <laughs> I, I was at that distillery just last month. <gasps> you were? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, from up in Portland? No. Tequila? Oh. It was in, oh. um, like, in tequila. Yeah. It's oh, okay. Okay, okay. Down okay. over the border. That's uh, My buddy was traveling okay. and, and brought me back a bottle of it. I nice. that was yeah. Nice. Uh, well, it wasn't a gift. I paid him to do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice gift to gift. yourself if you let me finish. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> if anybody is wondering, uh, that is the voice of our guest this week. Uh, Tatiana Mack is an interactive art designer uh, and director, and she is super passionate about accessibility and inclusive design and universal design and all of these ideas that into orbit around each other um and it's something that we've wanted to talk about um but certainly wanted to have a voice who uh could teach us a few things so um hopefully y'all learned something this evening tatiana uh thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to, to come and sit with us yeah, on this thank you yeah thank you for having me and sorry i i didn't know if i like came out of the curtain too soon there <laughs> supposed to sit silent <laughs> <laughs> no no it's fine that one of these days i'll do it i'll do like a surprise reveal of somebody we'll start out like a normal show and then hey all of a sudden you know eric myers i don't know uh oh my gosh john cena oh john cena yeah there we go i like that yeah john cena can you imagine what he has to say about ux i i would i would not be completely surprised if he had some insightful comments about it yeah I, I think that he'd be the kind of person to delightfully surprise you about things. <laughs> he seems like a sharp fellow. Uh, what can I say? And funny. Uh, funny to boot. So uh, we, like I said, we, we're going to talk about accessibility. We're going to talk about a lot of these, uh, these uh, concepts around each other a lot. But I wanted to start things off at the start. So if you go out and you, you look up tutorials on this stuff, you go sit in at a conference session, you know, whatever. You're going to hear these words, right? You hear accessibility, you hear, you know, 508 compliance. Um, in Kansas, it's policy 1210 um, is the state uh, governing uh, umbrella uh, for that. But then you also have this inclusive design idea, this universal design idea. So let's... A11Y too, yeah, right? Ally? Short them for your, your hashtags and things like that. Um, I want to start there because I think it's easy to mash these things together but they are different they do imply different things uh so tatiana start with that if you would tell us what does that mean to you and what are those differences in principles and and philosophy yeah so i think that the important aspect to focus on here is that these terms definitely matter and as with words words have impact i think it's important also, to not necessarily allow these words to become harbinger for your 
initiatives around accessibility, right? So we need to understand these terms and what implications that they have, but also not allow them to become um, preventative terms to prevent us from from going ahead. We're going to make mistakes. I think that's a big caveat that I'll throw out is with as with design, accessible design, we're going to be making mistakes. So the sooner we can acknowledge that those mistakes will happen, whether it be with how we use the terms or with our executions of accessibility, uh, we need to kind of accept that um, empirical truth. Um, but to dive into the terms, um, so universal design, I'll start there, um, is the idea that design should be universally usable by any user. Um, so it shouldn't require any adaptations or adjustments. Um, and there is a bit of nuance in this term that I think is important to note, um, which is that depending on the person designing the tool, universal design is very um, can be very dangerous because you might think something is universally accessible if you have access uh, to using both of your hands dexterously, right? Like it's it's always going to come from the point of view of the designer creating the tool um, or the app or whatnot. Um, whereas accessible design takes a focus on designing for those who have um, special needs or requirements. So at the center, you're putting folks who um, don't necessarily have every single tool at their disposal and then designing for that. And hmm. I think that that nuance is really important to look at because many designers um, are, you know, able-bodied and bring a lot of that bias to the table. And then, you know, we'll talk more, I think, about design patterns in a bit, but if the design patterns we start to create and start to trend are created by those designers, that becomes the baseline. Um, but that baseline has been created with an ableist bias. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to focus on accessible design, which which forces the designer to step back and to assess the full gamut of their users and design for the users with the most needs. Um, because for folks who don't have those needs, the design is just going to be even easier for them to use, right? Like you're, if it's something that you make accessible for one hand, for example, um, folks with two hands, it's just going to be easier or it's going to allow them to uh, do the same thing with one hand and they can do whatever they want with the other hand or um, not even have to consider it. I have a, a, a example I give people for this because I, I try to get these two things broken apart a little bit so that people understand what it means. And the example I tend to give is like language barrier stuff um, because language accessibility is not about, uh, n you know, not having or, or having a disability or an ability somebody else doesn't or anything like that, but it can be a, an, an access problem and a usability problem. If 20% of your users are from Mexico, but you don't offer Spanish language translations, you are not thinking about the needs of those users from, you know, from a very base level. And it's not because, you know, of anything except for a generalized barrier and, and like, you know, Quebec and the way they have approached that and basically made a requirement of you have to offer things in English and French because 
they didn't want people just throwing one of those languages out the window because it was too much work to implement, for instance. Um, that That's one way I think about it. So um, one of the things that uh, Donald Norman talks about in Design of Everyday Things is the idea of affordances. Like if you have, um, when you're, when a user is approaching a new system that requires some amount of learning, you provide affordances like um, like on a stove, if you have four knobs, you put the knobs in an arrangement that correlates each knob to a particular burner. So you can like kind of onboard to it more easily. So Tatiana, when you talk about accessible design, are you talking kind of about sort of making affordances for users that are differently abled? I think that absolutely that makes sense. Um... Okay. to think of it in that way. Um, I also think that it's about designing it to be as simple as possible. And I think that that's a principle. I don't think accessible design is very widely taught in formal design um, schools. Mm. And it's not something that our community does outside of the accessibility community does a great job of, of taking into consideration. Um, so I think that it's important to tether the idea of accessibility to something that is very intuitive and widely talked about in design, which is, I think, like that idea of keeping your design as simple as possible. And I think that's where designs tend to become inaccessible is that we pack on features, we pack on interactions, and it's all to make the design more special but often in doing so, we're removing layers and layers of accessibility. Huh. So in your in your Skillshare, which we'll have a link in the doobly-doo, um, you talk about design systems. Can you explain what that is versus design? And like we've talked about design philosophies before and how those are different than just design. What is a design system? So there, uh, a design system is effectively looking at designs not through the lens of comps. I think that most designers who have been working in web for um, a while have gotten used to this idea of creating comps for their developers, right? Like you're trying to create every single possible instance of every single interaction so that your developer can um, create all of those instances. But a design system is stepping back and looking at it as a suite. You're going to have things like buttons, you're going to have form fields, you're going to have um, image treatments, type stacks. So instead of looking at it through the content as it exists now, it's saying, we know what types of content we're going to have. Let's create all of those components and then let's create a system or language oh. um, around that idea. Um, and I also feel like we have to admit a bit that that is a practice that has been happening in design in the past, right? Like those, those things have existed pre-web, but it's having its yeah. rebirth. We, we love trendy words. So, you know, if we Google design <laughs> systems right now, there's a lot of articles being written by very smart design systems, designers. Um, but I think that's where accessibility and design systems can become really healthily tethered together because if your design system is baked to being accessible that removes likely many errors that you might make in making inaccessible designs because the components you're drawing from are already accessible to begin with so i guess like the uh the episode with greg padanovich where we talked about design philosophies he was sort of saying that like the design philosophy is kind of the, like the 
the spirit or the the essence of what your brand is expressed through design. So a design system might be sort of a, a predetermined discussion about the implementation strategies for how and how that will influence design. Does that sound right? I like that. I think that your design system should be influenced by a design philosophy. And as an accessibility mm. supporter, I would say that accessibility should be a fundamental ethic or ethos integrated into your philosophy mm. that guides your design system. Okay, gotcha. So when you're making a style guide, how, like, what at what point in the process do you kind of integrate the design system into the style guide and, and vice versa? So I think that one of the first steps before integrating it into the style guide is making sure you have the conversation with your team. I think that that's something okay. that gets neglected often is that accessibility can't be just like, you know, any other social cause can't be championed by one person and one person alone. Because the idea of a mm -hmm. design system is relinquishing a lot of that individualistic control that designers have historically liked to have. Um, you're basically saying, <laughs> here's the language. Now everyone go speak it. I hope you speak it like I do. Um, <laughs> and that's scary for a lot of designers who um, like to control the design. But I think that if you have the conversation with folks and get people understanding the impact of accessibility and getting them to think about accessibility in a different way, your design system will have more voices um, championing this idea. Um, so I think that's just a, a note that I like to make is that accessibility has to be bought in by more than just one person. Okay. There comes a point too where I think, and I've, I've talked to people that have struggled with this, I've seen presentations that have gone into this idea that we tend to focus on accessibility so much as an afterthought that people feel like it's bolted on because it is in many hmm. cases. Um, and when you talk about integrating it with, you know, the underpinnings of whatever system or philosophy that you have, um, it tends to be looked at as something of a burden to, you know, I, I already have my stuff. Now you want me to throw all this other you know, uh, uh, consideration into the mix. And the, the thing I, I would, I'm, I get at by saying all that is there was a time where we did not put elevators in tall buildings. <laughs> now, if you build a tall building, there are a lot of reasons the elevator is there, but now it is just assumed you build a building, you know, you're putting an elevator in it. And, and that's where I hope to see this discussion going in the coming years is, we stop talking about it like it's something you have to do. And, and we're going to talk here in a second about why we suck at this. And, and one of the, the reasons we suck at it is because accessibility gets looked at as this list of checkboxes that you have to get through. Um, and so eventually we will overcome that feeling um, and it will just be part of the way you do it. I've, I've heard that, that same idea of the, the checkboxes list uh we're like for compliance in the infosec circles where a lot of um like the the c-suite or the the higher ups will often just say like does our does our security like pen testing does it does it get a green check mark on all these different items and sometimes that still overlooks like some bigger security vulnerabilities but they've hit their check boxes so they're like we're good 
Yep. And because that's just how business is geared, right? Business is set on lists of actionable things. And is it done or not done? And that's true in, you know, with, with accounting. It's, you know, it's true with HR. It's not just a web-focused issue, um, that checkbox thing. Uh, but I do think it is particularly hindering to us because so much of what we do is qualitative, not quantitative. Um, it's easy to be like, well, you know, has HR done all their exit interviews? Have they, you know, asked about these things? You know, has is payroll taking care of X, Y, and Z? You know, either is or it isn't in a lot of those cases. But with design, there's a lot of subjective stuff that happens. There's a lot of qualitative stuff that happens. And there's a lot of stuff that moves constantly. You know, you design something with, you know, a, a, uh, opacity, you know, turned down to did uh, background image with white text over it. You've designed it with color. Did you say that? I, hey, <laughs> tequila, man. Uh, there was such authority, though, where I was questioning whether it was a word. I was like, it sounds like a word, I guess. You don't have to be smart if you say it with authority. <laughs> Rule number one of conference presenting. <laughs> But it's, it's that idea that, you know, we can, we can design it perfectly and then hand it off to a content person who figures out 12 different ways to break it. And so you've got to constantly be checking and reviewing. And it, it is a cycle. It is a process. It is not a goal. It is not a finish line to cross. So that said, Tatiana, have you worked with organizations that have had to kind of um... – revisit how they integrate accessibility into their practices like like what what are some ways that you've been able to kind of influence that yeah i think that the sad part is it's not that i'm coming in and helping them to improve their accessibility processes it's that i'm coming in and i'm asking oh well how does this consider you know accessible design or how will this be accessible to folks who um, have neurological disorders and there's silence. And I think that's the scariest part. So going back to your idea of elevators, it's like I'm the magician that comes and I'm like, I have this magical thing. It's called an elevator. And everyone's like, she's a witch. It's a box. Right. They're like, it's a box that moves on its own. She's a witch. You know, and so I think, I think that that's the, the scarier part right now is that we live in this society where we like to think that, you know, we're, we're quote unquote civilized. Um, but this is a very somewhat um baseline thing that i think all designers should be considering and it's not very widely considered it it seems almost like accessibility and um things that are accessibility adjacent are almost regarded with kind of a hostility by people who don't care about them at all in the same way that like you might have like a preschool classroom and like one person is is clearly like bothering the person next to them, but they're like, I'm not hitting them. Like I'm not putting glue in their hair anymore. <laughs> like what's what's the problem here? <laughs> right. like, we just we're, we're not like uh, there's not enough empathy. There's just like, look, I'm doing the thing you told me to do. Like why 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 is why is this a problem? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, and we won't get into um, social justice as a topic because that's a, an entire <laughs> different podcast and an entire different episode. But I do think that there is a common thread that I do want to identify. Um, and I do talk about this a little bit in my Skillshare class is that um, the inherent privilege that we all proceed with as designers and developers. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, I think that it's really hard for us to suspend our experiences. It's not impossible, but we're not asked to do it very often mm -hmm. um, when we're in the majority because that's what privilege is. If we were able to know we were privileged, we would be so much farther along in the world. But that's the kind of um, the, the challenge inherent to privilege is that we don't realize how hard things can be for other people until we mm -hmm. see them ourselves, we hear about them ourselves, or we experience them ourselves. Um, right. And I think that that's kind of a good segue um, into a quality of disability or a um, temporal aspect of disability, um, which is that at some point in our lives, we experience... Um, disabilities, even if they're not permanent to us. Um, and that's a common breakdown with um, when you're looking at uh, disabilities is to look at it on the time scale. Like most folks who are experiencing this that we're designing for have a permanent disability, right? Like they have a, um, mm -hmm. they're colorblind forever. Um, but it could be the case that you um, had uh maybe your city is shrouded in smoke uh because of fires <laughs> and you um, are experiencing like some your city is literally on fire <laughs> yeah exactly as, as a random <laughs> random example um and you might experience some vision impairment well one would hope that that's not going to become permanent but that's a that's a temporary um <laughs> blindness that i experienced or i looked into the sun during the eclipse and maybe um, for that, the rest of that day, um, I couldn't see that that's also temporary. Yeah. Um, so the three ways that we break that down are permanent, um, temporary, and then situational. And you'll see a common example of this is um, for uh, having access to only one arm. So permanent is right. if you're an amputee. Temporary is let's say you broke your arm. Um, and then situational is you're holding a bag of groceries or a baby or your pet fox and you only have um, access to one arm. You know, the other interesting thing about this idea of being, you know, the, the temporarily abled or however, you know, whatever phrase people want to use for this is um, we don't stop to think quite enough, I think, about the fact that we have not been building websites very long. Um, I am still very just lightly middle-aged we'll say <laughs> kindly to me um the the aging of our society the folks who are entering their their 60s and 70s and 80s now are not necessarily people that have needs that are web-based um or simply haven't interacted with that medium to this day um you know it's going to be another 30 years before i advance to that point in my life and you know many of my friends and colleagues that are in their late 30s early 40s who are you know have been doing this for you know as long or longer than me they're sort of the leading edge of that wave um, and I think that that's going to be a huge turning point for the way we think about that because now you're going to have all of these 
uh, Gen Xers, all these early millennials who did have all of this stuff and expect to have all of this stuff and are finally, that light bulb is going to go off. They may not see the light bulb anymore, but it's going to go off. <laughs> and they're going to realize, oh, this is what they meant. This is what everybody was talking about when they said, you know what, someday you're going to know. <laughs> yeah, I think that a common thing I like to do um, is to compare our world and our timeline to other types of design. Um, so I'm a huge uh, pyramid fan and Egyptology fan. So I like to look at pyramids and how they've progressed over time. I'll never forget the first time um, that I went to the Red Pyramid in Cairo, which is not very well known. Um, but it's it's fascinating to look at that pyramid and then to look at the Great Pyramids and to see the evolution that happened. There was this, this like hmm. sense of insecurity. The Red Pyramid has a really, really, really large base. Um, and if you look it up, it, it, it looks ridiculous compared to what we know pyramids to look like now. But you can see the thought process. It's like, well, we don't know. Like, this is probably going to come collapsing down. We're pretty sure there's this force that's pulling things to the ground <laughs> let's make this base real large to make sure that all this work we're putting into this isn't going to collapse and it then looks you like know, a squashed pyramid yeah it's like really semi-fine yeah it's really huge on the bottom huh um and so i like to think about websites that way right like we were like oh well everyone uses a desktop because back then they did and we're like let's slice it into a million um cells in a table and that was kind of our initial pyramid and we have to work so hard to undo some of those early decisions mm. because we we look at design i think through the first lens and that's i think my cautionary tale is that we have to step back and not just look at what's the first lens are we looking through but who's the person writing that story and what what privilege does that designer bring to the table that we're inherently progressing forward with right right so I want to talk here before we go to break. Let's let's look at this through maybe a more tactical lens in terms of um, why we suck at this. Um, and Tatiana, you started kind of getting on that with with your pyramid metaphor, and um, I was talking about the check boxes thing. That there are, I think, I mean, people are probably going to write dissertations in the future about why we were so bad at this, you know, at this point in time. Um, but there are, I think, some very specific reasons why we aren't being effective um, or as effective as could be certainly. Um, one is this idea that um, like I, I tend to think of accessibility not in a philosophical sense. And I know a lot of people don't do that because for us, accessibility exists as 508 compliance. Um, and that goes back to that that checkbox mentality hmm. and technical people, I think very much think that way. They don't think qualitatively. They think one or zero. I did it or I didn't do it. Um, and where this really failed us, I think very specifically is with the WCAG specs. And as those didn't evolve, you know, we just saw uh, 2.1, uh, the, we just saw that come out and it's got all these updates for, you know, newer systems and web applications and state changes and devices and all of this stuff. And that's great. That's fantastic. And then it's going to get old again. Um, and what we do a really bad job of is looking at these things and extracting the intent out of some of them. Um, 
one one of the and I I can hmm. already predict it. Um, in uh, WCAG two point one, they have a new spec on um hit size. So if you've got something that needs to be clickable, it has a minimum hitbox size. I think it's forty four pixels by forty four pixels. Hmm. That is a very specific and screen dependent measurement that could change very rapidly in terms of the device you're using, the the environment you're using something in. Um, and instead of people sitting down and saying, yeah, 44 pixels isn't big enough anymore, that idea, people are going to sit down and they're going to say, yeah, but it's 44 pixels, so it's good enough. It satisfies the requirement. They aren't going to sit there and think about, let's maybe understand that they did this because we need to make sure something is big enough to interact with. And six years from now, if, you know, Project Silver hasn't, you know, landed yet or something like that, um, we're going to be able, a good designer is going to sit there and say, we need it to be bigger and it should just be bigger because that's the point. And then you're going to have all the people saying, yeah, but 44 pixels is the check mark. That's something we got to get over. It sounds like you're talking a little bit about like persona based design, like, uh, like integrating an accessible persona or accessible. I'm not using the right words. A persona that would require accessibility. But that's the problem. I'm going to challenge that really quickly. I think the problem okay. is to consider that accessibility is affecting one of your personas. I would make the argument that accessibility affects all of the personas. It's just that okay. when you're talking about an accessibility persona, you're talking about someone who it affects to a degree of awareness where they're hyper aware as to how their experiences are compromised because they are faced with inaccessible design. We all have accessibility considerations that we would take. Speaking for myself, like I was one of the first champions at a lot of the places I worked for doing size um, 20 pixel baseline font. And I still get pushback hmm. from people, usually people that are um, have fresher eyes than I do, telling me that's insanely <laughs> large. Like they're like, that's so big. How, how, why would you make it that large? And now I look at them and I'm, you know, if you look at most websites, blogging websites, that is yeah. the baseline. So I guess I challenge that idea and I challenge that practice of integrating your accessibility considerations into only one persona. I think they should be integrated into every single one. Do you think it'd be more like a trait that could be considered for each persona, like kind of layered on top of this is the persona and these are the the desires, tasks, et cetera, that they would be approaching the site with. And then these are like the different flavors of that persona um, with they have different uh, capabilities as far as interacting with the site. Exactly. You mean more like that? Yeah, exactly. I think if we look at okay. the statistics around accessibility, it's often cited as being 15% of folks. But I, I think wow. that that's in one, it's a higher number than most people realize. But two, I also yeah. think that it's not considering that's considering to the degree I mentioned earlier. I think that we all have, we all are benefited or we all benefit from accessible design. So yes, to integrate all the different types in each of your personas would be excellent. Cause I think that there's also even within accessibility, a bias for physical disabilities because it's something we can see. Um, you hmm. can see someone with, one arm we can see someone who's vision impaired um but then there's a whole host of um 
disorders that happen internally that are, you know, neurological or psychological that affect the way in which people view the web. And so I'm just of the belief that that 15% is shy of what it actually affects. Um, and and this, this would kind of get back to the design system thing that you talked about earlier, where it would be sort of an underlying foundation um, that you would then consider that would then affect implicitly all of these different persona. Exactly. I think that it would also help to mitigate that bias for physical, visibly physical disabilities. And I think there's a good reason why from, you know, design and certainly a developer standpoint, we tend to bias our thought process that way. Um, and it comes down to testability, right? It's easy for me to, easy relative term, but it's easy for me to test, you know, being blind. It's easy for me to test being deaf. You know, those as, as a as a qualitative feature of how something works, those are systems for which we can create a way, you know, to go in there and, and see how that turns out. Um, as we go down that rabbit hole, it starts to get hard for people. And, and I'm not I'm not saying this as like a defense of the thinking. I'm just saying this is why people think this way. I think um, I think I think uh, that. <laughs> You know, when you get into not even like to like the cognitive level or things like that, like I've never seen a persona that included as a trait of the person colorblindness, for instance. Um, and I think any colorblindness isn't even that rare. Like it affects what is it, like 10 percent of all males, something like that. Um, yeah. And we yeah. have tools to simulate it quite easily. Um, and yet we don't ever seem to include a trait like that in one of our testable personas um, because, you know, it, it comes down to, I mean, it comes down to so many things, but um, I definitely, I do absolutely agree uh, with what you're saying, Tatiana, that we shouldn't make a persona that is like, particularly like just the catch-all, like it's the, <laughs> real just the one person. Who is it's it's basically it's Helen Keller using your site. Right. Yeah. That's that is not a solution here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And it is fascinating to me because colorblindness does affect, I think it's like eight percent of men. Um so that's basically, you know, one almost one in every ten dudes that you know are colorblind. Mm -hmm. And then I also consider that a lot of those dudes that I've met uh, don't actually know that. <laughs> and I get That's to reveal to them. Line. Yeah, I get to reveal to them when they're wearing two colors that don't make sense together. <laughs> I've, um, I've been that person to many people. So I think that's an aspect of it is that colorblindness certainly has its ramifications. Um, but perhaps because it's something that even folks who have it sometimes aren't aware of it, um, it helps to, to lead to not considering it. Well, let's all run away for about 60 seconds. We're going to go refill our glasses, uh, regroup on all the things, and then we're going to come back and we're going to start talking about how we can take some of this stuff and, and these ideas about why we're not very good at it um, and how we start integrating this into our work so that from the ground up, you are building things that take people in mind and put people ahead of, of code, basically. Uh, so sit tight. We'll be back and have fun.
The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Are you trying to build a case around an interactive map for your school, city, or business? NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. Their team of professional cartographers specialize in map illustrations and are ready to design a rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all your users' devices with responsive maps that scale and blend in seamlessly with your website. Visit them online to request a demo at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Thanks for sticking with us here on the Drunken UX podcast. We are talking to Tatiana Mack this evening about accessibility and inclusive design and all of those beautiful things that make your websites better for all of the people. I've switched my drink of choice here. I've actually gone to a Cherry Pepsi and Kraken. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, how, how many never, fingered, How many tentacles of Kraken you got in there? Um, I, well, about two. I yeah, went that's about what pretty, I do. Pretty normal. Um, I, I've never actually mixed these two in particular, so I'm curious to see what happens there. And Tatiana, while we were on our little break, I did take a second just to check. I thought I was okay, and I wanted to make sure. But you will be happy to know that on my personal blog site, I am using twenty. <laughs> that, that is my base font um i did not i didn't check the, check the drunken ux site but i'm pretty sure we are there too and if we aren't i will make a commitment to you right here i will make sure that we change that uh and I'm, I'm checking it right now actually as i'm looking here so a font size uh is oh yeah no it's wait oh wait <laughs> i made it smaller I've been doing a lot of mobile testing and so my thing automatically went to mobile view. no we are 18 so i will i make a commitment to up that to 20 so i just wanted to check my blog and my blog has an error establishing database connections so <laughs> this, today just today just got better you are learning accessibility 101 there you can't be broken if you can't get to it uh yeah but oh, his site isn't okay. accessible at all so that's the height yeah. that's pinnacle inaccessible right there. That's, that's the it's the roll safe guy it's like you can't have an inaccessible site if your site is completely inaccessible yeah it's schrodinger's <laughs> principle of accessibility <laughs> i like it i like it um so we're gonna talk this half of the show about um how we get better you know how we talk about this both you know at a somewhat tactical level with individual things but also thinking about it from a work standpoint you know and how how we talk about this to coworkers or teams or you know, when you, when you go, you know, work for a company, if you're a freelancer, contractor, or something like that, um, we want to teach you guys. Um, so the first thing I've got on my notes, and I'm, I figure the, the, the start of the start is the best place to start, is with integrating, holy crap, integrating <laughs> this into your processes. And the, the first question is, how do you identify need? Um, and I think maybe the corollary to that question is basically how do you make sure that you are being inclusive how do you make sure that you are accounting for things that you maybe don't even know about um you know let's to put a stupid example out there maybe you don't know colorblindness is a thing so how do you you know open yourselves up to that analytics doesn't tell you that right analytics doesn't tell you if somebody's colorblind um User testing. <laughs> That's the best answer I have. Um, yeah. What about you guys? 
I think user testing and casting a wider net is certainly one answer. Um, I think that often from my experience with user testing and granted, I haven't um, worked places where there was super extensive user testing. So maybe you all can chime in on that regard. But I think that there is a, um, a common practice with user testing where people just bring in people they know um, and pe turns out people's friend circles are not that diverse. <laughs> um, so I think that being able to cast a wider net and including more folks across the gamut is one component, but I would even argue that that's a bit too late um, because at that point you're testing something that possibly was designed without any accessibility in mind. So you're going to have to do one of two things. You're either going to kind of have to start over or you're going to be shoehorning uh, different things in just to pass an arbitrary um, set of criteria. Um, it, so I, you have to, yeah. you have to get over that idea of if it, if it isn't happening in my circle, it must not be happening. Um, and I see that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, because that goes, and I, I think I know exactly why you're laughing is, is because it's not an accessibility <laughs> thing. Like that is just the way people think, um, whether it's about news, whether it's about business, whether it's about any number of things. Um, we tend to discount something if we don't happen to know somebody um, that is affected by that. Uh, and we got to get over that. Um, you have to start accepting the fact that things happen outside of your sphere of influence. Um, and you need to be mm -hmm. open to talking to those people and figuring out how to include them, to use a word. <laughs> Maybe we could call it inclusivity yes. or inclusiveness. Inclusiveness? Yeah. Would that work? Seems like a good Inclusion. word. Yeah, I mean... It <laughs> <laughs> yeah, inclusive design is certainly another term that gets used. And I think that's important because it also, I think that, like I said earlier, accessible design tends to have a, a physical disability bias and what it neglects that inclusive design, I think, um, implies is um, including, like people don't often think about the considerations with uh, nationality, race, and language as being inaccessible. I think you mentioned this earlier is that um, we, we don't, we just don't think of that as access. And so I think when we use accessible design, that kind of pigeonholes us into only thinking about physical, sometimes um, neurological disabilities. But um, when we talk about inclusive design, that starts to force us to think about things like race and um, access to fast internet is another one. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, gender and so many other things that, that definitely influence our experiences. Um, they don't necessarily render them useless always, but they have impact and they have an influence on, on the emotion behind our experiences, which I think is important to note. So um I guess that's why I always say that I'm a champion for accessible and inclusive the, the, design. The fast internet thing reason. is kind of funny because the last episode, Michael and I were, were reviewing weather sites. And um, what was it? AccuWeather? Yeah. Was that the one with all the ads? Yeah. Bad, bad. Yeah. They, their site was like tens of megabytes, wasn't it? Yeah. 60. It, just from ads. Just from ads alone. Mainly. Yeah. 
And I think that that's a really good example of um, with speed in particular is something that going back to the idea of temporary, situational and permanent, like I think we often think about internet speeds being slow in like Africa. Like that's like our go-to example of like, oh, well in Africa, the internet's like 2G internet. But I just want to remind everyone on, and I see them on Twitter, who complains about their slow internet in their house, Mm -hmm. at work, when they're on a plane, like, (laughs) and that's such a perfect example of like, you've literally experienced this, and you experience this on a regular basis. um, But it's still foreign to people Mm -hmm. when they're doing site testing. So I would bet that those people who created that weather site um, have experienced slow sites before, but then they just somehow like miraculously forget (laughs) when they're testing on their fast internet, how awful that experience is. Well, and, you know, to take it back to sort of that privilege discussion just a little bit that, you know, it to them, to us, oh, my internet is slow for now, but it won't be here. Yeah. It's just my line having a hiccup or something or my ISP having, you know, a lot of people on, but here in a little bit, it'll just be better. But those folks, it doesn't get better. I read an article yeah. uh, a couple days ago about how in the state of Arkansas, there's it's called digital redlining. Um, and it's like, for example, there's these um, public services like provided by the state government where the websites for them, the websites themselves are only accessible from what, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. or something. Like the website has hours. A website. <laughs> they, they don't accept submissions outside of that time frame um i'll I'll put the link for the thing in the in the doobly-doo but uh, that like it's mind-blowing but i guess in the state of arkansas though there's a uh, internet access is limited and not always high speed arkansas when you just want worse kansas <laughs> that's what i always say no and you know that was a factor like even just thinking about you know again how this affects normal people um, you know, when I was looking for a new house, I needed to make sure I had a house that had good internet um, because I literally make my livelihood on it. Um, I can't, you know, I can't suffer a slow connection because it impedes my ability to work. Um, but access to good internet severely restricted where I could choose to live. Um, I wanted to kind of get outside of town. I wanted to be, you know, in the country. I would have liked to have had a pond because I like fishing. I'm a country boy like that. Um, not in other ways, but like that. Uh, and I couldn't do that because there just wasn't that kind of access. I could have gotten internet, but it wouldn't have been good enough to accomplish what I needed. Now, my needs obviously are significantly more robust than others. But it's, you know, getting that context, I think, helps people start to understand at least a little bit, you know, how important these things are and how it does, you know, the U.S. is in bad shape in terms of speed compared to a lot of places. So let's, let's talk about education real fast here. Cause I know of course um, we've mentioned several times, Tatiana has a skill share on this that um, we definitely encourage folks to go check out. But, um, and, and you had mentioned this early on that, you know, we aren't doing a good job teaching this stuff. And I'm kind of wondering, I guess in the back of my head, maybe what that looks like um, down the road. And, how, you know, if if a kid goes and, and enrolls in a graphic design course at, you know, University X, um, how do those courses include that, do you think? 
Well, um, I can't speak from experience here because I'm a self-taught designer. Um, so I don't necessarily know um, whether I, I don't believe that it is from people that I've talked to being widely included in design programs. Um, I think that it's often the case that we look to educational infrastructure as being the solution. I definitely think it is a solution. Um, and I, I do hope that any design professors and teachers um, will consider at least one component in accessibility so that there's general awareness. Um, but I think that we need to solve this problem both systematically like that and also in a very grassroots way where we just start talking about it more. I think, you know, having this podcast and talking about it, um, I'm headed to um, Epicurrence, which is a conference in Yosemite next week, and I'll be talking about it there. Um, I just don't think it occurs to a lot of people. And I think wherever you can be that kindling of accessibility and you can ignite that conversation, you have the power to seriously impact the way in which your organization, no matter how small, um, starts to consider accessible design um, at, a, at a broad scale. And I think that that's where we need to be very careful to um, not think of solutions as only being systematic, but, but see the many ways in which us as individuals who work in this industry can, um, can impact um, talking about accessibility more. I think that's like the number one answer I have. I, I think too, the way I look at it and the, there's almost a, an irony to this, the, the way, um, the way it reads to me is, you know, we, we make fun a little bit. Um, I, let me rephrase. I make fun of, of educational programs that try to teach web development because they are so frequently, you know, at, at a school state or state school level, um, you know, behind, they tend to be always playing catch up. They put students out who are not caught up on, you know, various skills or tools or processes or whatever. Um, and, you know, a lot of like graphic design courses and things like that and, and design philosophy courses, you know, they'll get into Photoshop and that's cool. Photoshop's been around forever and it will continue to be around forever. So that's probably reliable. And they will talk about design philosophies from the 30s up, you know, into modern times. Um, and that's cool, too. But why aren't we including inclusive design in that? Because inclusive design is the discussion that doesn't age like the the thought processes and the problem solving skills that go into how to design something that accounts for people that's not dependent on your tools now getting mm -hmm. tools can make it better you know figuring out how to test things and do things like that can certainly improve that process but we are talking about a principle a philosophy a set of ideas that govern the way you think about a problem and so i think that's one area where and if if anybody listening teaches a teaches courses. I know for a fact, a couple of you do, because um, I've talked to you and I know who you are. Uh, you guys <laughs> are the ones who have that chance. And if you're not doing it in your classes, I would definitely encourage that. Or if you're, um, we've got, for instance, here in, in Pittsburgh, we've got a, a technology advisory uh, committee for our high school. And they're always asking us, you know, what does your industry look for? You know, as we're, they actually make custom courses for some of these kids. Um, and I try at one point they're like, should we be teaching flash? No, sir. You should not be teaching flash. And I'm not making that. That is not me trying to be facetious <laughs> oh for the microphone. They, that was literally a question that we got asked about two years ago. Um, so just to give you an idea of where they're at. 
Um, but we try to push these ideas of teach a kid how to do a build process. I don't care what kind, but think about it. Teach a kid how to work with the other kids. And I think teach a kid how to think about a problem inclusively certainly falls within that collection of ideas because it's a skill that they can carry forward and apply. Um, and so that's kind of what I hope from education. Yeah, I think that this touches on what is a uh, probably a past or potential future topic, which is this idea that I think design is often taught vocationally when it needs to be taught a bit more philosophically, that the permanence in design and I would argue development is in understanding, teaching yourself how to think and how to learn, not teaching yourself specific tools. And I think that's kind of the Achilles heel of so many design and development programs is they are playing catch up. They're teaching students like C++ and like Java. Um, and not to say that those languages aren't being used anymore, but it's so challenging, I think, when I see developers, especially who are young and they learn React. Like they are, I am a React developer. And it's like, okay, but do you understand how JavaScript works? And I think that that's where like the mm -hmm. fundamental understanding isn't there for a lot of newer designers and developers. They just learn the tool. They learn how to use Figma. And it's like, that's great, but do you understand the design philosophy to that? Um, so I do think like institutionally, yes, we can have a wide impact. But I also think that for new designers and developers, like taking a bit of priority in teaching yourself through the many wonderful um, like self-teaching courses you can take, whether it be through Skillshare or um, Treehouse, you know, there's so many out there, but focusing more attention on those fundamental courses and worrying a bit less about being trained in whatever language, because depending on right. where you work, you're going to have to learn a new framework anyway. And I would hope that employers, and I think this is where employers can help, is don't hire for the language, hire for the understanding and the process um, and the intelligence behind the person. You can teach them the language. You can't necessarily or easily teach them how to understand good mm -hmm. development or design practices. Yeah, I've, I have emphasized that more times than I can count that. When I'm hiring, if I'm interviewing mm -hmm. people, if I'm looking for folks to, to help out on, on anything, I will hire smart people frequently before I hire skilled people, if that makes sense. Like, I need somebody that I know can learn and adapt and pick things up. If you come in already knowing stuff, I know that means I have bad habits that I'm going to have to break in you. Um, or maybe not bad habits, but certainly, you know, things that you do and are used to doing that don't mesh with you know, whatever process you're coming into. Um, and that flexibility and that nimbleness is so important to everything from communication to problem solving to designing to building uh, and solution engineering. Let's see how many other buzzwords I can cram into that. But yeah, <laughs> I'm totally on. Yeah. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I feel like skilled people tend to have more egos than smart people. <laughs> just going to throw that one out there. What are you talking about? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. like someone who like identifies themselves based on the a specific skill they have they tend to be very ego driven in my it, experience it's, it could be a could be a consequence of imposter syndrome like if you if you're narrowly trained into a specific skill 
like very specific in that skill set, then you might be worried that you'll get found out as not being like also being a smart person. And I, you know, I think part of it too is smart people chase and crave learning. A smart person will continue to learn and grow their skill set, whereas a skilled person, kind of like what you're just saying, you know, they will entrench themselves in their skill. Um, and that's great if you need that right. particular thing. But uh, yeah, outside of that, it gets, yeah, it gets difficult. Um, I'm happy to say that my website is back up. <laughs> <laughs> it's accessible again. Well, I don't know if it's accessible, but it is accessible. It's accessible. I mean, it's more accessible than it was like 10 minutes ago. Yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about a couple of these individual ideas. Um, and I, I think, too, what we, what we can do as we go through this is break up how accessibility differs from inclusivity in them. Um, so thinking about type and typography, and we've talked about some of this mm -hmm. already, but we'll you know, go through a little bit of it again. You know, we know big font is important. Uh, you know, it's easier to read. It's easier to see on a mobile device for you know, certain. Um, I agree with you, Tatiana. I'm a big fan of crank that font size up as high as you can. It, are you paying for pixels? What's, you know? Yeah, mine's at 14 pixels. Fix it. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah, and I think, too, like, that's where I'm going to tie back into design systems, right? That it's not, I mean, would I love every website for my own vision impairness um, to be size 20 yes but my bigger request would be don't make your site break when i use an inherent feature of the browser to zoom in mm. um and that happens a lot with designs that are so um and i you know i think this is a term from the the grave a bit but pixel perfect <laughs> that when i increase the font it breaks your container um because you only wanted me to view it in that one way you're you're a controlling designer that decided that I should only see this in one size and one size alone. So um, I think allowing that fluidity within your design is a core principle of accessible design, knowing that folks are going to be making adjustments, right? So they're going to be adjusting the size. Um, often they're going to be adjusting the contrast. They're going to be reducing motion. Like I, I think a lot of designers could benefit from knowing how much power um, or how little power, depending on how you look at it, users can um, affect the design of their sites. Yeah, there's, you know, this idea of, and we talk about it in marketing quite a bit about who owns your brand, so to speak. You may own your trademarks, but you, the brand is sort of a piece of the perception that everybody has of you. Um, and if their perception is one thing, that's, you know, you can try to manipulate it, but you can't take away their ability to perceive you one way or another. And the same goes for, you know, this, this way you approach design that once your design is out there and it's in the browser, you may own the code, you know, you may own those Photoshop files or illustrator files or whatever, but the person now controls the way it makes them feel and the way that they use it. Um, and if that means they are cranking the zoom level up, if that means they are splitting their screen, you know, now I'm on a, dual monitor setup here you know i'm not fancy with 4k monitors but i got 2k monitors i frequently will have two windows open side by side which actually <laughs> means i'm squeezing them down a little narrower than is maybe intended um 
but that's my control now. I own that, you know, the way that that looks. Yeah. Think about that. You know, you have to think about that flexibility. Yeah. And I would add to that, that I think an idea when we talk about design philosophies to start with and, and how we affect change in this space is to start thinking about our designs as things to progressively enhance. Um, one of my favorite websites, I think it's called, Hey, it's a fucking website. Um, and it's a website that just is rendered in HTML and not much else. Um <laughs> And one of the arguments I think on the site is like, it's, it's fucking accessible. And it, it obviously throws a lot of F words in there for comedic effect. Um, but that idea that the internet as it was made is accessible. Designers just slowly ruin that as we start to add different features on. Like every website, if you were just to write it in HTML, would be accessible across every browser for every internet speed, like it's just rendering text, right? But it's the second we start to add like these weighty JavaScript interactions and adding imagery with text baked into it, like that's when we start to get in trouble. So I think when, we, when designers start thinking about a design, when content strategists start thinking about the message, start with the most bare minimum thing you can possibly get away with and only add things if it's actually helping the story. Um, I come from a journalism background and there is this kind of uh, idea with adding images, which is don't add an image that tells the same story that you've already written. Hmm. Add an image that tells another component of the story that you can't write about, that can't be written through words. Hmm. And I think that that philosophy can really help with progressive um, enhancement in only add something if it's really benefiting all the users. Um, but and uh, you're you're segueing well into the next point I have here, which is talking about imagery. <laughs> yes, um, and are you know with images in particular, you know accessibility focuses very you know I say very heavily. It is a bullet point, a checkbox that we have chosen to take very literally, which is alt text. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure your image has alt text. Make sure your image has alt text. But you know, this idea of also being able to include uh, a long description is something that's often overlooked. Not necessarily a checkbox for the sake of accessibility, but it does allow you to add a lot more information vis-a-vis -vis the image that can be beneficial to other people who are using your site in a different way. And we kind of throw that away. Like that's not something that's used by very many people at this point. Or if they do, they just copy their alt text into it, which is not the right way to use that field, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not. And I think that that's another component is learn all of your um, HTML attributes, learn all of your tags. Like those are your friend. And I think that semantic based. Um, I'd second that. Yeah, some semantic based, like writing your site. Why am I having so much trouble with this? Writing your site with the correct semantics goes such a long way. It removes a lot of need for descriptions. Divs are not very specific, right? But like in um, using um, header, footer, those types of things are hyper specific um, um, or even article. Um, so I think like that's, that's another thing I'm going back in terms of learning things is that I feel like designers just learn divs and that's like all they need or developers, designers, whatever, learn divs and then they learn how to manipulate divs. But there's this whole world of semantic HTML that they just never learn. 
Um, and, and there's there's a really interesting uh, use case too that it, it greatly enhances accessibility um, and usability both. That if you are writing good HTML5 um, articles, navs, headers, footers, um, those have intrinsic ARIA role uh, values. So if you mm-hmm. have you know if you have a navigation a nav element. Um, you don't have to add an additional ARIA role to that element on top of it. It just will automatically, like its default value is navigation. Um, and so that actually simplifies a lot of that process. Now, if you're just doing, like you say, div soup, if all you've got are 13 million divs on your page, then you also have to take the time to go through and make sure each one of those has appropriate ARIA roles on them. And if you don't know what ARIA is, we'll leave a link in the show notes about um, about that. It, basically helping to tell screen readers and, and such what kind of element they're looking at and what its purpose is. I'm, um, I'm happy to also say that my website now, the smallest font is 16 pixels in the top <laughs> menu and the body font is 20. So I am I'm compliant. <laughs> I noticed you were kind of quiet over there and you're just yeah. like slowly <laughs> trying to make your site more accessible. I love it. It's um, Solving sorry. problems yeah. one show at a time. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that going back to ARIA roles, uh, I think that's an interesting, I think of that as almost a, if you have to use it, you're already one step removed from making the most accessible site you can. That there is this kind of pervasive philosophy across the accessibility community that you shouldn't really have to use those if you're, to your point, using HTML5 properly. Um, that that should be more of a crutch. I've had, uh, I've given feedback to uh design comps that we were sent by outside firms where they would have things like div class equals address or uh div class equals site and it's like why are you doing this and not using the address tag or the site tag <laughs> um, yeah, c-i-t-e not yeah. s-i-t-e and that goes back right to just to kind of put a bow on some of these ideas you know it, it's a skill versus smart thing right it's the same reason why some developers never got away from making table-based layouts. You know, they had their way of doing things and they've kind of stuck to that. And nobody has sat down and said, hey, guys, uh, you need to update. I, I think we should maybe revisit that. And I don't think it's a smart thing. I think it's an attitude thing. Like, um, because I, I don't think that this should be lim- like people shouldn't. If someone is doing that, if they are a skill based developer, they shouldn't feel like there's they're intrinsically flawed or something. It's it's an attitude that I think ostensibly anyone can go and say like, okay, I don't want to be limited to just this skill set. I would like to uh, expand my horizons and learn these new things, and they can do that, and and they don't have to just be limited to just doing table based layouts. I, I think if we solve that particular problem, we've solved a much broader societal issue. Like, I mean, I, I don't yeah. think that yeah. developers, you know, I think that's, that's true for doctors. That's true for gardeners. That's true for, you know, uh, contractors and everybody like people true. get into their rhythm and it's, you know, it's just human nature, I think, to kind of dig in a little bit. Um, but Drunken UX, solving one society problem at a time. Our, our tagline is just going to be solving all the problems. Um, world domination. <laughs> that's our goal here. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, okay. Uh, what else? What else uh, can we help people oh, with? There was a. So, I wanted to mention a couple 
things that I saw in the Skillshare that I thought were really interesting. Uh, one of them was you mentioned about not using all uppercase text, like as written yes. in the HTML. And because screen readers will read that as an acronym, and I, it's I actually had recently uh, we had uh, on a project at work we had a table where the table headings the text was written as all caps and I went back and I changed it to being properly written with like mixed case and then I did text transform uppercase and then that's what you suggested mm -hmm. the other thing is like yes like success kid <laughs> um, and then the other one was with uh, headings like not using headings for emphasis but rather using them to indicate like document structure, actual outline or like hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People use header structure really arbitrarily. I'm, I'm guilty of it, you know, and I think that it's a bad practice that I want to say could have come from CMSs, right? Like <laughs> people seeing the baked in header stylings and just yeah. thinking of them as like, Oh, I want this big font here. So I should just use an H1 tag. Yeah. Um, but like that structure is, what helps to dictate like scanning text. Like we take for advantage, you know, for those of us who aren't heavily vision impaired, that idea of being able to scan an article mm -hmm. or a web page. The way that folks who are vision impaired do that um, with their screen readers is being able to navigate, say, with their assistive technology, whether it be a keyboard or whatnot, um, to skip through and maybe read all the header tags. Well, imagine how awful that is when you um made all of your inspirational pull quotes in an H3 and that person is just being like subjected <laughs> to hearing all of these inspirational quotes in H3s and they're just trying to figure out like what is the structure of this document. <laughs> um, so I think that that's another component that we haven't talked about is that um, a lot of times we don't even understand the assistive technologies or ATs that folks are using. So being able to have those in your testing um, array it in addition to having your macbook your ipad your surface pro whatnot that you also have those assistive technologies at your disposal mm -hmm. and you play with them to understand and to feel how someone is um experiences this. like i i remember on twitter someone tweeted like sure your name that has 17 emojis in it like looks cute to you but this is how it sounds to me as someone who's using a screen reader <laughs> um, and the person recorded it out and they were reading a thread back and forth between two users and it was like so much of their time was being wasted hearing like purple heart emoji red heart emoji yellow heart emoji <laughs> orange heart emoji and imagine that for like a 30 strand thread on twitter like it's it's absolutely like just frustrating um so i think bringing those technologies into our testing um arenas and making sure we're using them to test so that we can gain like a little bit of of understanding of what folks are, are dealing with and if you or your company or whoever you're working with is concerned about the cost of you know getting screen reader software and things like this uh, you know in your test suite um, just remind them that the cost of an accessibility lawsuit is considerably higher. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it, it's. Oh, I was just going to say, and to spin that in the positive, right? Like um, an aspect of my course is selling accessibility and, and making people understand why it matters. I mean, there's the human component and I would hope that would cover most people. Um, but then there's also the very business minded folks um, who maybe don't care as much about the human component. And for them, it's revenue lost. 
Mm -hmm. Um, These are people like, you know, I'm a big form field. I have a lot of opinions about form fields. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So thinking about form fields, that's one of the key metrics to conversion um, for a lot of businesses. Um, You are losing out on not just people, and I, I say just lightly and somewhat facetiously with accessibility concerns. If you have a, a broken form, you're losing out on a much broader share than that 15%. Um, so I think convincing and, and illustrating to your key stakeholders who do hold the purse strings to buy you assistive technologies, um, who do have the purse strings to add the marginally extra hours you need to consider accessibility, they are losing out on revenue if they don't consider accessibility. So that's a way that I, I paint it for you know, the big corporations of the world. A and- really easy way to check that without even using a screen reader is if you, um, I, I know Firefox has this or it did. I don't know if Chrome does, but in Firefox, you could go to the view menu and then choose page style and then choose no page style. And then it would render whatever mm-hmm. page you're looking at with, with the CSS disabled. And then you can really see like, what does this document look like when there's no, like when the presentation is completely raw and um, mm-hmm. it, a lot of things become immediately apparent. And if you just imagine a screen reader is going to start at the top and work its way down, how far does that screen reader have to go before it gets to any of the navigation? Or like, if you're looking at it, can you kind of clearly tell what the different parts of this, the page are without any styling or anything? And we haven't talked about yeah. it at all in this episode yet, but um, I think maybe it is a great topic for a future deeper episode. But Firefox has an accessibility inspector built into it now um, and gives you a look at the way the DOM is being rendered from that level. So when a screen reader hits the page and, you know, understanding how it's going to read things and what it's seeing, particularly in the scope of if anything changes on your page, you know, if you've got anything that updates or, you know, you know, swaps out content or things like that, uh, it's, it, it's designed to give you that feedback. Um, cool. it's, it's a technical tool because it is, it's not, you know, it's showing you information. It's not, you know, rendering something for you in the same way, but it does give you a lot of information as to how your page looks to a machine. Um, and so that's something to consider. And that, like I say, that may be worth a much deeper dive, I think, down the road. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of Firefox Nightly um, for that reason and also for its um, assistance with CSS Grid, which is, I think, um, a methodology that is worth mentioning that even when it degrades in the less um, enhanced browsers that we all know what they are, um, (laughs) it still is accessible. Um, And I think that's a core thing is that with CSS Grid, I'm not saying it's impossible to make an inaccessible site with CSS Grid, because that's certainly not the case, but it is much more inherently accessible. Firefox is doing a lot to try and endear itself, I think, back to the development community. It used to be, you know, the sweetheart, um, and then Chrome came along and kind of ate its lunch. But here lately, there's definitely a fight. Uh, You know, they're clawing their way back and and doing so well, because not just the accessibility inspector, but, you know, like their CSS animation debugger and things like that are all... Yeah, they're super cool. When you say CSS Grid, are you referring to the CSS Grid layout on Mozilla? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to put a link yeah, to that so, in the doobly-doo. Yeah, so CSS Grid, 
and I think I've had so many conversations with developers of a certain breed who argue with me as to what CSS grid is <laughs> when, when they're like, Oh, you mean Flexbox? And I'm like, no, it's, it's different. <laughs> so it is different for all of those of you who are rolling your eyes saying, does she just mean Flexbox? So, no, I don't. <laughs> before we take off for the day, I want to kind of drill into a story a little bit. Um, for those of you who are concerned, um, you know, if, if you're in a position where you know any accessibility work, uh, inclusivity work that you want to do is going to be after the fact, that's okay. It's better than not doing that work. Um, and I'm here to tell you that it can be done. Um, we had a redesign project uh, sometime back where uh, it, same kind of thing uh, that to what Aaron was kind of describing. We had a third party firm come in and give us a layout. Um, we immediately looked at it and said, okay, it's pretty, but you know, there are certainly a number of issues here that, you know, we have to raise. Um, we had people who make much more money than us tell us that that's the design. You need to implement that design. Um, and so the way we, that we fixed this was as a team, um, we, had, we have a, a phenomenal QA uh, tester that was on our team. And we, you know, went to him and said, do you know accessibility? And he says, yes. We say, great. And so we started making it part of his day. He would spend some time just going around the site and he would find accessibility problems and he would make a ticket for us. And we would log that ticket. And every week when we did sprint planning, we would make sure to bring up two or three accessibility tickets. It did mean all of this work was getting done after the fact. No question, that's not the most efficient way to go about it, but it did allow us to start addressing some of these needs and it got all of our team thinking about it. And I think that's the other, you know, inclusive design means one thing to the user. And I think it means another thing to the developers and designers on the ground if you're part of uh, a group. And part of that is making sure you are inclusive internally about the way you're thinking about this and you, that you get everybody on board so that somebody isn't kind of dragging behind or not doing their share and that they understand that this is important. Um, and so we started that process. And then by doing that process, it started to allow us to ask those questions earlier when we were working with marketing, when we were looking at landing page design. Now, all of a sudden, it's something we think about a lot. And so we see white text on a washed out photo and we're like, hey, has anybody contrast checked that? No? Okay, well, let's do that. Let's get in there and let's make sure that's okay first and then find a solution to it before we've written any code to support it. Um, and now as we're, we're not perfect, um, God knows we still have a long way to go on a lot of our tools. There's still a lot of stuff we build that is very turnkey and just get it done and let's get to the next thing. But we are better now than we were a year ago. And we are better now than we were six years ago uh, by light years. And so don't be afraid if this sounds scary, if you don't know how to dig in, if you don't know you know, what that approach looks like that you think it's too much to take on. Um, we, I, I come back to this, um, this phrase. We, I think I used it in the last episode too. How do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time with some teriyaki sauce and a little bit of ginger. Um, you know, that's the way you solve a problem. And that works really well here too, because if you don't start, then you don't get anywhere. Um, that's my lesson. Tatiana, would would you describe the like 
uh, inclusive design or accessible design as being more like a like a like a goal that you you've reached it you can say like okay we're accessible this is done or is it more like an kind of an ongoing process that constantly requires reevaluation I think it's I think it's more of the okay I think it's more of the latter and I think going back something I've personally learned um is that we can learn a lot from app releases I think that um we tend to treat especially with websites um the sprint to a finish we treat websites a bit like uh newspapers right like that there's a day when the website will launch and then we can all breathe again um and then the website tends to kind of live somewhat statically maybe we add content to it here and there but for the most part i would say most of the websites i've seen live statically um and that sprint to the finish burned everyone out who was working on it but i think that if we treated websites a bit more like apps mm. and release the first round um and release that idea of perfection um, and then we could go back and realize that there are components that we wanted to make more accessible. Um, it, it takes a bit of that pressure off to check the box. And I think that's the thing is that the inclination to check the box only exists because we think there is a finish line to cross. Mm. If we never set ourselves a finish line and instead we say, okay, we've crossed this milestone um, and we've completed this um, set of considerations that still gives you the sense of accomplishment, but, but decoupling that from the idea of finishing, um, I think is, is super critical, um, especially accessibility. And then I also talk a lot about within accessibility, releasing the idea of perfection that like, I think that we have this tendency as we do in conversations about, you know, social inclusivity um, and accessible design, this idea of doing it perfectly the first time that we're so fearful of, of making a site that's quote unquote inaccessible that we just end up making a site that's inaccessible. Um, <laughs> and I think that we need to worry less about making it perfect. And just like I started this episode with releasing that idea of mistakes, we are going to make mistakes. We are going to learn that there's a better way to do it. Um, but if we keep releasing improvements, like we're making the experience better and better with each release. Um, and that's, I think, at the end of the day, all we can really ask for. Yeah, it's not a failure to realize that you could have done something better. The failure is to not do it better then. You're always going to find that. You're always going to see, oh, we can, you know, this text is too small or this image is not contrasting enough. Fix it. That's all. It's, it is not a big deal. It is not, a, it is not something to look at as you didn't do good enough or anything like that. It's, it is a process. Um, I literally fixed it during this recording yeah. on my website. So here, yes, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, the literal perfect yeah. example. <laughs> they, we, I mean, it takes that long. We identified something, <laughs> we addressed it, uh, and as a result, it is now better, and it's now good moving forward. Tatiana, I want to take. Oh, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, it has been so good to have you here to talk about this and to go over yeah. things. Uh, this has been great. I want to before we take off. I want to give you just a couple minutes. Go nuts. Tell everybody where they can find you, what you've got coming up, what you want them to know, anything at all. The floor is yours. Okay. Well, the first thing I want to do is acknowledge that despite trying to call it out and uh, <laughs> uh, and acknowledging it, that I didn't do a very good job covering 
uh, non-physical disabilities, when we are talking about the header tags, another consideration I want to plant in folks' minds is um, that folks who are autistic or have ADHD are really affected by the header tag order as well, um, because they use that to help them uh, process information. So um, I acknowledge my own blind spots here um, <laughs> uh, within this <laughs> podcast, even of having a bias to physical disabilities. So I just want to throw that out there. I, I was I was thinking about uh, uh, dyslexia earlier, yeah. actually. I've got a friend who has to use two-factor authentication and has a real hard time with that. And I meant to bring that up too, and I didn't even think about it, but that's yeah that that's another good example yeah that's a great example um yeah so where you can find me obviously we referenced my skillshare course quite a bit um and you do get uh two free months um if you sign up through the link um that'll be included in this podcast um there's a whole host of excellent classes out there um from lots of teachers um and i would highly recommend signing up um i'm also very active on twitter um at tatiana t mac uh, I talk a lot, not only about accessible and inclusive design, but I talk a lot about um, race. And I think that a lot of these philosophies that we talked about with accessible and inclusive design um, and and the, the mentality and attitude that we take towards this applies for race and uh, gender and socioeconomic class and whatnot as well. So I think the more we can have these types of conversations, uh, the better off we'll all be. Um, and then if you want to see my work um, on my work in progress website, it's TatianaTMac.com. Um, so if anyone's going to, I, I don't know if this episode will air by the time, but um, I am headed to Epicurrence, which I'm really excited about. And we'll be talking about similar topics there. So yeah, I'm around. <laughs> Thank um, you. And if, yeah. And if anyone ever has questions, I'm by no means like the accessibility expert, but I'm an excellent Googler. And I have a strong network of accessibility experts at my disposal. So I'm always happy to answer questions for folks um, without very much judgment. <laughs> <laughs> the Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Well, thanks again for listening this evening to or afternoon or whatever time you're listening to it. Uh, this has been really awesome. I learned a lot, and I fixed my website. <laughs> Thanks again to Tatiana for joining us this, today, and uh, be sure to check out and connect with us also at Drunken UX on Twitter and Facebook.com/DrunkenUX, and also come chat with us on Slack at DrunkenUX.com/Slack to sign up. There are a ton of awesome links in the doobly-doo/show notes, um, including many of the ones we discussed in this podcast and all the ones that Tatiana told us about too. 
Peace, Jerry. Yeah, you can find us online at drunkenux.com. All the show notes will be up there for that. For past episodes, be sure to check out Build Process. We will have a new episode of Build Process coming up in September. Um, note, uh, run by our blog for the updated schedule on the release dates for that every Wednesday. Otherwise, we have real-time overview. We will look at news articles and tutorials and advice and all of those things for everybody. It takes 10 minutes, um, and we try to run through as many articles as we can there. Uh, Tatiana, again, I can't uh, thank you enough for taking your time out of your day to sit down and go over this with us. Um, we hope you all learned something. And if you have any questions, um, by all means, reach out to us, reach out to her, uh, reach out to Twitter, reach out to somebody. Um, uh, just don't touch them without consent. Um, and I guess uh, with that, I only have one other thing to say, and that is to keep your personas close and your users closer. <laughs>